0: Several years ago when uh, Leslie and I were traveling overseas, we went to Rome and uh, we were having a little tour there. And one of the things we went to was the Vatican. And one of the desires I had in the Vatican was to see a number of paintings of various biblical scenes but also the cross. And I remember asking our tour guide uh, for certain paintings and certain um, artists that I wanted a view that I had looked at years ago in books but had never seen the actual painting. So she took me to several of these. The reason I'm telling you that is that, you know, over the years, there have been many, many people who have tried to capture the, the agonies and, and the sufferings of the cross of Christ. They've tried to paint that moment or describe it in a poem or have tried to write something about it to help us understand what really is incomprehensible to us, isn't it? I mean, I don't know about you, but have you ever stopped for a few moments and really thought about what Christ endured during those dark hours on the cross for you and I? What actually took place physically, spiritually, emotionally, um, mentally with the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, really, (laughs) When you boil it down, it's, it's beyond human comprehension, isn't it? We really cannot fully capture and understand what it was that he went through for us. Well, one of the most profound and I think insightful prophecies concerning the suffering and triumph of Christ is found in Psalm 22. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go there. Psalm chapter 22. Now, it's a long psalm, and I'm not going to try and Preach through the entirety of the psalm. You can go home later and before your afternoon snooze, I would encourage you to reread this and uh, take a look at what, in this case, David writes concerning a moment in his own life when he faced obviously intense suffering. And, uh, And so it's remarkable to think about that here we have this psalm written a thousand years before the birth of Christ and a 1,000 years before the invention of crucifixion, which frankly was the cruelest form of execution known in the Roman day. And so David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, captures and really foreshadows, as you know, the true agony and horrific reality of the cross, giving to us, I think, a far more graphic picture of Jesus' death than any of the Gospel writers ever did. One psalm has called this, one commentator has called this psalm the best description in all the Bible of Jesus Christ's crucifixion. And as I've already mentioned, it is an individual lament of David. And many have suggested that Psalm 22 is in many ways an expansion of Psalm 2. And you remember back in Psalm 2, There is a description of God's enemies attacking God's anointed one. And the psalm ends with God's enemies bowing before the one who they tried to take out. And so the New Testament refers repeatedly that this is a messianic psalm. In fact, it's part of a group of psalms that David wrote that are called the shepherd psalms. You remember this, Psalm 22 therefore is often called The Psalm of the Good Shepherd. And Psalm 23 is referred to as the Psalm of the Great Shepherd. And then Psalm 24 is referred to as the Psalm of the Chief Shepherd. And all three of those descriptions are given to Jesus, as you know, in the New Testament. Psalm 22 can be broken into two simple parts. Uh, First, you've got the sufferings of Jesus or the sufferer's petition. And the second part of the psalm is the triumph of Jesus or the sufferer's praise. And so we're, we're, I'm going to give you a little devotional on these two points based on Psalm 22. So let's have a look at the sufferer's petition here that runs from verse 1 right through to verse 21. Now I know as soon as you read verse 1, you recognize those words. I know you do. And uh, so here David, at the climax of Christ's agony on the cross records the words of Jesus uttered that two of the Gospel writers record for us. And you know these words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so here, the psalmist captures that moment when the Lord Jesus and God the Father break their fellowship and for the very first time ever jesus finds himself alone separated from all the goodness and grace of the living god and here in these words jesus quotes them not just verbatim but rather these are words that are filled with experience for him words that caused him originally to drop great sweats Sweat, blood, to (laughs) get my tongue to work here this morning, that caused him to sweat drops of blood before he entered into the events of Calvary. These were words that capture what Jesus felt when he asked the Father three times, remember this, if there's another way, God, please, please, would you would you provide it for me other than the cross? These are words that define in verse one and of psalm twenty two the Jesus' worst nightmare come true. These are words that that express the Father's complete and utter withdrawal, his provision, his protection, and his praise for the Son. These are words, frankly, that are so horrendous that as you reread in Matthew 27, even the forces of nature itself reacted to the Father and Son being separated for the very first time. And so these are words that capture the full weight of hell, bearing down on the Son as he who had no sin became for you and I sin. And so verses 2 to 21 describe in detail that horror that Jesus went through. And verse 3 tells us why he went through it. Notice what verse 3 says. It says, yet you speaking of God the Father, are enthroned as who? The Holy One. You'll notice that the words holy and one are in caps here in our text. Because here David is addressing from the point of view of God's essence that he is absolutely pure and he's absolutely separate from sin in all that he is and all that he does. And so as Jesus bore the sin of many. The Father had absolutely no choice because he is the Holy One, but to turn his back on Jesus and to forsake him completely to the forces of hell itself as the fullness of the Father's judgment against our sin was leveled on Jesus. Jesus bore hell alone for us. One individual wrote this, there was no angel to help him. There was no friend to comfort him. There was no Holy Spirit to assure him. And there was no smile from the Father to encourage him as he hung on that cross for us. In those moments of separation from the Father, and as he endured the fullness of his own agony because of our sin, I want you to notice what verse six says. Here's a description that Jesus uses for himself that I find frankly shocking. He says here in verse six, but I'm a worm, not a man. Scorned by men and despised by people. Imagine that, the son of the living God describing himself as a worm, a useless piece of meat. The Lord Jesus here, in the depths of his agony in this moment of separation, as he is humbled physically and mentally, as he's rejected and despised and cursed and hated and mocked and insulted and disdained by those who were around him, describes and felt that he was nothing more than a worm. A worm. And the words that we have here in verse six and seven and eight are fulfilled to the letter in Matthew 27 and in Mark's Gospel. This is exactly what happened to the Lord Jesus in these moments. And those crowds that were around Christ and religious right that thought they had it right and they were measuring Christ with their warped theological measuring sticks had verbally concluded that if Jesus truly was the Son of God, if he really was trusting in God, then he would not have been suffering as he was. Oh, how wrong they were. How wrong they were. How They did not understand the teaching of the scriptures at all. I find it interesting that the word that's used here in verse six for the word worm, it's actually the same word that's found in Exodus 25 and 4 that's de- that is defined with the word scarlet. And it's the same word again that's found in Isaiah 118 that's defined as the word crimson. You see, this is a reference to a little worm, and here it is. This is referred to as the scarlet worm. And these little worms were used to, be, to, to dye garments, Red, And so these little worms were were dried and then crushed to extract, if you wish, their scarlet fluid so that they could dye a garment, a crimson color. I really believe that this word, worm, describes the necessity of the father crushing his son like a scarlet worm in order to extract from the Son, his life-giving blood in order to bring to you and I complete and eternal cleansing from our sin and guilt and to restore us into a living right relationship with the eternal God. This crushing is described here in vivid detail in Psalm chapter 22. Notice in verse 14, Jesus talks about himself as being poured out like water and all his joints are out of out of whack, <coughs> his heart is, t- is turned to wax and it melts within him. Verse 15, his strength is dried up and his tongue sticks to the roof of his mouth and he lays in the dust of death. In verse 17 he says, I can count all my bones as people stare and gloat over me. This is a vivid description of what Jesus endured. It was hell itself. As Jesus drank dry the cup of God's wrath for us, every pain, every discomfort, every dislocation, every drop of blood, every agony, every assault from the forces of hell was literally unleashed on him because of our sin. As one commentator puts it, Jesus experienced our hell so that we could experience his heaven. But you know, the glory of this this passage is that it doesn't end in verse 21 with the agony of Christ and the forsakenness of himself by his Father, but rather it moves now in verse 22 to declare the vindication and the victory of Christ. Because we move from the cry of the psalmist and the Lord Jesus in verse 19 where he says, come quickly, be my help. Deliver my life, rescue me, save me from the horns of the wild ox. And then there's a complete change of tone in verse 22, where the psalmist writes, and Jesus now declares, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation, I will praise you. Verse 24, for he is not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. You see, now as the psalmist moves through the experience of agonizing pain and suffering, there is this underlying confidence. There is this this foundation of faith that brings hope to his soul in his agony. He knows, he knows, that his covenant-keeping God will not forsake him forever. And as you work your way through the psalm, you hear the psalmist saying in in, in verse three, yet you. And then in verse four, in you. And again in verse nine, yet you. Go down to verse 19, he says here, but you. You see, the, the, the psalmist's confidence was in the living God in spite of the fact that in these moments of agony, he couldn't find God. He felt totally forsaken by the living God, and yet he knew. He knew from from past experience, he knew from the testimony of his his forefathers that God was a covenant-keeping God who could not break his promise and could not forsake his people forever. And so his trust lies here. And so he cries out to God, deliver me rescue me save me because he realizes and knows that unless god steps in there is no help unless god delivers and rescues and comes quickly he is done but he knows god will at some point act in deliverance and in mercy just as he always has in the context of the history of his forefathers he will arrive at some point and do what God always does, enact his grace in my life. Is it not so that as Jesus hung on the cross and as these words in Psalm 22 were uttered from the depths of his soul, he knew, he knew, he knew that his father would not forsake him forever, that a day of vindication was coming, the day of victory was sure. The path to glory was through the cross, and he understood that and that that path was laid out by his Father. And he knew the beginning of the end of it. And the time would come when he too would say, I will declare, I will declare, I will praise you. I will. And he did. And you know, this is the glory of this passage. As we arrive at verse 22, the psalmist now breaks into praise here. And he says, here's something I will do, I will declare. And he realizes because he will declare the the name of God to his brothers, that they too, in turn, will declare the name of God to their brothers. Because you notice how this Psalm ends. He says in verse 22, I will declare. And then I want you to go over to verse 31, where he says, they will proclaim. And so here we have evidence that the end result of the suffering of Christ on our behalf is that the day will come when, when you and I will know the blessings and the victory of the, cro- of the cross in its entirety. He has to drink that cup dry in order for us to drink the cup of blessing in return. And so the psalmist is rejoicing in the fact that he will declare, and he will know the Father's acceptance once again, and that the end result of that is that the assemblies will praise the living God as one. I mean, really, this psalm connects with what Jamie spoke of last week from Psalm 67. Because I really do believe that this psalm, like no other, has a grand vision of that day when the nations themselves will gather around the throne of the living God and declare that the Lamb of God has been victorious. Because you'll notice in verse 27, he says, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him, for dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. And so the Psalm ends with this glorious picture of the day when the work of Christ will be known from sea to sea, and his rule will be over all nations. And every tongue and culture will stand before the living God and will remember the works of God and will bow down before the living God. And he even tells us here that, that the work of Christ will include both the poor, in verse 26, and the rich. In verse 29, it's our cross that suspends of all cultures and, and all, all, uh, all aspects of society. None are excluded from the gift of Christ, won through the cross. All are invited to come and know the eternal blessings of the victory that Jesus Christ has, has won for us. And so what this psalm does is this. At the conclusion of it, from verse 26 to the end of verse 31, the psalmist is now inviting you and I to realize that the silence that Jesus once knew on the cross has been broken and to know fully that the Father's rejection of the Son during these agony moments of agony on the cross are now over. And no longer do we have to know the rejection or the, or the agony or the separation of the Father in our lives. The divine justice has finally been satisfied and the divine love has now broke out in course and in worship. And so we are invited from verse 26 to 31 to do several things. We're now invited to eat and to be satisfied in Christ. You and I are now invited from verse 27 to 28 to remember, to remember and bow down before the living God in worship because of his sovereignty and life giving gift. And we're invited from verse 29 to 31 to proclaim the Lord's righteous actions and character redemptively to the next generation. Why? For one reason as the Psalm concludes in verse 31, for he has done it for us. And so that's where this table comes in this morning. Jesus endured the horrors of hell so that you would not have to. And every time we come to this table together as a people who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, we are invited to eat and to be satisfied in Jesus. We are invited to remember and to bow down and to worship him because of his sovereignty and life-giving gift found in the Son. And we are invited again to serve and to proclaim the Lord's righteous redemptive actions to the next generation so they too can know the vindication and victory of Jesus. So I want to invite you right now to take a few moments to bow your heart, talk to the Lord, and to make sure that there's nothing between you and the living God. That there are no reasons why you can't partake at this table. Just a reminder that this table is for those who've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. This table is for those who have asked Jesus into their life to be their personal Lord and Savior. This is for you. And so I'm gonna ask We're gonna have a moment of silence here and then I'm gonna ask the Lord to bless as we partake of the bread together, reminding ourselves that he was crushed. And so you talk to the Lord for a few moments. The agony that not only that Jesus felt, but that you felt on that dreadful day, the darkest day, when you had to turn your back on the son whom you loved because he was sin-ridden from head to toe. He was cursed. He was under the judgment, your judgment. And he was paying in full with his own life the payment that we should have paid but couldn't. He was bearing in his body all of our sin and hell itself. And so today we are so grateful for Jesus that Lord, he willingly went to the cross knowing f- full well what that was going to cause him to have to endure. And he did it for us so that we would never have to endure the agony and the separation. And so, Father, as we take this bread, Lord, may our hearts flood with thanksgiving. That what Jesus has done has fully satisfied your divine wrath and has turned it away forever so that now, Father, we might know life and life eternal in him and in him alone. Thank you for the privilege we have to participate together in this glorious celebration of the death and victory of Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I was thinking of this great hymn. Let me uh, quote one verse of it. It says this, my sin, your sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I, and you, bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. God bless you.